Good morning. I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. A popular menu item or recipe for Christians at Sunday lunch is roasted pastor. Some enjoy a steady diet of it all week long. Tastes something like this. He's not tall enough. He's not good looking enough. He doesn't dress nice enough. He can't sing. He's not funny enough. He's not eloquent enough. I don't like his hair. I don't like the way he he should do this. He should do that. Let me tell you something. Roasted preacher may taste good going down but it always causes heartburn both for the preacher and for you. D.L. Moody was one of the great evangelists in American history, but he had his share of enemies. One time when he got up to the pulpit to preach, there was a note waiting for him. It simply had one word. It said, fool. Now, that would intimidate a lot of preachers. D.L. Moody looked at the message and made this comment. He said, I have known many instances where a man wrote a letter and forgot to sign his name. But this is the first time I've come across a case where someone signed their name and forgot to write the letter. (laughs) You know, it helps to deflect it. It helps to have a sense of humor about it, but the reality is that criticism hurts. And for preachers and any kind of spiritual leaders, it comes with the territory. Moses, the great leader of Israel, was under constant criticism. About every other chapter in Exodus and Numbers, we read, the people spoke against Moses. Was Jesus' criticism free? No. The religious leaders of his day said his disciples don't wash their hands. He heals on the Sabbath day. He has a demon. He is a blasphemer. And Paul, the greatest leader in the history of the church, got similar treatment. He planted the church at Corinth. He spent a year and a half there teaching them and building them up I'm sure he anticipated that he would always have their trust, always have their loyalty. But as he writes 2 Corinthians, many in the church there are having roasted Paul. They are saying, as we read in the first verse in chapter 10, Paul's pretty bold when he's off somewhere writing a letter, but when you see him face to face, he's meek, he's weak. He's a wimp. He's a wuss. He even quotes what they say in verse 10 of chapter 10. He says, For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive. He writes strong letters, but in person, he doesn't look like a leader. He doesn't walk into a room and command respect. He's no Clint Eastwood. He's no John Wayne. He is unimpressive. 
And then look at the end of verse 10. And his speech is contemptible. People in the first century would go to lunch and they'd say, what do you think about the message? It was contemptible. I'd rather you tie me in a room and take your fingernails and run it down a chalkboard than listen to Paul. He can't preach his way out of a wet paper bag. And what was the problem? Look at verse 12. For we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. They were playing the comparison game. They were comparing Paul to others, and they were comparing Paul to the way they would do it if they were in his shoes. If I were him, I'd do this. And the influence behind this whole attack on Paul, as he's going to point out in the next chapter, chapter 11, verses 13 and 14, is false teachers and Satan himself. So Paul finds himself in a beauty contest with these false teachers at Corinth. And his response is, hey, I don't mind being evaluated, but you're using the wrong criteria. And we see that at the end of verse 2 because they were, they were those who, Paul says, regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. And down in verse 7, you were looking at things as they are outwardly. You're evaluating me on the basis of the flesh and on the base of, basis of outward appearance. And in this 10th chapter, Paul is going to say, you want to evaluate me? Fine. But use the right criteria. If you want to evaluate me, use spiritual criteria and look at things inwardly. And so in this chapter, Paul is going to do a little self-evaluation. He's going to challenge the Corinthians to look at him from the inside out. And the four areas that he's going to focus on are the areas he's being criticized in. And those are his attitude, his activity, his appearance, and his assurance. And we're going to look at the first two this morning. First of all, his attitude in verses 1 and 2. Now, these false teachers had come into Corinth with kind of a macho image. They came swaggering into Corinth. They were bold. They were authoritative. They were assertive. They lorded it over the saints. And the Corinthians looked at them and say, now these are leaders. In fact, to see that, look at the next chapter, chapter 11 and verse 20. He says, for you tolerate it if anyone enslaves you, anyone devours you, anyone takes advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, anyone hits you in the face. You put up with this. They walk in and slap you around a little bit. And you say, my, what a leader. And Paul says in verse 21, to my shame, I must say that we have been weak by comparison. If that's what strength is, then we're weak. And so these false teachers come in with their macho style 
And they look at Paul and they say, he writes these bold letters, but face to face, he's meek. He doesn't have the attitude to be a leader. And so Paul says, well, let's look at my attitude from the inside out. Look at verse 1. Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent. That's interesting that Paul mentions himself four times in this little short verse. He says, I, Paul, myself, you know, the one who is bold when I'm absent, but meek when I show up. And he's really mimicking the criticism about him. It's me, Paul, the one who's not macho enough. It's me, Paul, the one who's not qualified to be an apostle. It's me, Paul, the one who's not qualified to be a leader because I'm too meek. And this accusation is based on the fact that he wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians and he had a lot of bold things to say in that letter. When we go back through the letter, the first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 3 and verse 3, he pointed at them from a distance and said, you're still fleshly. In chapter 5 and verse 1, he says, there is immorality among you which is not even mentioned among the Gentiles. In chapter 6 and verse 5, he says, I say this to your shame. Brother is taking brother to court and suing him. He says in chapter 15 and verse 34, sober up and stop sinning. I speak this to your shame. Now, those are some pretty bold statements. But apparently in person, Paul was gentle, he was humble, he was meek. And the false teachers came along and said, see, he's not a leader because he's too weak. And Paul says, if you think my meekness is weakness, you better take another look because you've got two problems with your eyesight. Number one, you've taken your eyes off of Jesus. What is Jesus like? How would you describe his attitude? Well, Paul describes it in two words in verse 1. He describes Jesus' attitude as meekness and gentleness. I would describe meekness as that inner grace of the soul. It's the opposite of self-assertiveness. It's the opposite of self-interest. Meekness is the person who has themselves in proper perspective. They don't think too highly of themselves. They don't think too lowly of themselves. In fact, they don't even think about themselves at all. They are meek. How high do you rate meekness as a quality that you want to have in your life? Most of us are trained by the world that meekness means weakness. And yet, you know what? When Jesus wanted to describe himself from the inside out, when Jesus wanted to describe to us his heart, you know what word he used? Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. 
He said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and humble in heart. Christ certainly wasn't weak, and he certainly wasn't helpless, but he was selfless. He was meek. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 6, 11, pursue after meekness. In Colossians 3, 12, he says, put on a heart of meekness. Because though the world may look down on that quality, it's one that is valuable in the eyes of God. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. In Galatians 5.22, we're told that the fruit of the Spirit is meekness. When God is in control in your life, meekness will be the outcome in your fruit. In 1 Peter 3.4, it says, A meek and quiet spirit is precious in the sight of God. And that word precious means invaluable. God looks around, and when he sees the quality of meekness in your life, he says, there's no price tag I can put on that. That's precious. So Paul says, if you're considering macho as a criteria for a servant of God, you're looking at the wrong thing. And secondly, not only have you taken your eyes off of Jesus, but Paul says, you have put your eyes on the flesh. Look at verse 2. I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. Paul says, I wrote a bold letter so that you would respond to my letter so that when I showed up and you saw me in person, I could come in meekness and gentleness. Whether I really show up in gentleness or meekness is really up to you guys. In fact, he said that in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 4 and verse 21, he says, what do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? If you respond to my letter properly, I can show up with hugs. If you don't, I'm going to have to show up with some discipline. Kind of like the money changers in the temple got to see Jesus and what he thought about sin. Paul says, if you don't respond to my letter properly, you may have to see how I respond to sin. And the ones he's going to be confronting are those who have their eyes on the flesh. What's the fleshly criteria for a leader? Good-looking, assertive, affluent, influential, decisive, bold, imposing, cutthroat. We have this list. That's a leader. Paul says, when you evaluate a leader, you need to do it the opposite of according to the flesh. And what's the opposite of according to the flesh? According to the Spirit. And Romans 8.4 says, we do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You know, in football, they always take college Seniors and those that are going into the NFL, and they take them to an NFL combine. And these guys run a 40-yard dash, and they get their times, and they do a vertical jump, and they lift and see how many time reps they can do at a certain amount of 
strength, and, and they figure out just how fast this guy is and how high he can jump and, and all these measurables about him. If there was a combine for leaders, Paul wouldn't have very many measurables. He wouldn't come out and people would say, wow, look at his 40 time. Wow, look how high he can jump. Because Paul was humble and gentle and selfish and sacrificial. He was a servant leader. And Paul says, let's look at my attitude from the inside out. Unlike these false teachers who pride themselves in a macho attitude, I've modeled the attitude of the Lord Jesus. Meekness. Secondly, he points to his activity in verses 3 to 6. You see, the Corinthians were duped by these false teachers into believing that a real leader was somebody who came in and attacked problems physically, who used their own might and power to gain victories, who kind of showed their muscle and muscled through situations, who could leap tall buildings at a single bound. That's a leader. And since Paul didn't meet that criteria, he was being criticized. And so Paul says, let's look at my activity from the inside out. Notice verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. We do walk in the flesh. We are spirit beings inside this flesh carton. But there's a big difference between walking in the flesh and walking according to the flesh. You see, we are in the flesh, but the flesh doesn't control us. The flesh is the realm in which we have our existence, but it's not the realm of our activity. Our activity, Paul says, is warfare. And it's not a physical battle. It doesn't take place according to the flesh. We're in the world, yes. We're in the flesh, yes. But our battle is in a different realm. Ephesians 6.12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. You see, we are not doing battle with a physical enemy. We are doing battle with a spiritual enemy. And so a person's physical prowess is not a factor. We talked today about a guy being a natural leader. You can be a natural leader, have all kinds of natural resources. doesn't mean one thing about whether you're going to be victorious in the spiritual battle. Because in the spiritual battle, you have to have spiritual weapons. And that's what he tells us in verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Having the most cleverness, having the most ingenuity, the most strength, the most charm, the most personality doesn't mean you're going to win. I cannot look at an individual physically and say, this guy is going to do good in the spiritual battle. I cannot tell. Because all of those physical attributes mean nothing in the spiritual battle. 
Our weapons are not physical. I'm not going to find my weapons in my own resources. Our weapons are spiritual. And Paul says they are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Literally, they are mighty before God. They're not mighty before the flesh. You look at spiritual weapons from a fleshly vantage point, you're going to say, what is that? If an unbeliever sees you on your knees praying, what's he going to say? You're wasting your time. The reality is that one of your greatest weapons in the spiritual battle is prayer. And when you see through the eyes of God and you see through the eyes of faith, you recognize that as a spiritual weapon. And I'm sure in the back of Paul's mind is the Old Testament account of the Battle of Jericho. Jericho was that huge fortress that Joshua led the children of Israel to first when they crossed the Jordan River to take the promised land. According to the flesh, they didn't stand a chance. In fact, 10 out of 12 spies said they didn't stand a chance. They were saying Joshua's crazy, but God said, I've got some spiritual weapons for you. I want you to take the Ark of the Covenant. I want you to take seven priests with ram's horns. I want you to take all the people in total silence, and I want you to walk around the city one time every day for six days. And then on the seventh day, I want you to go out and I want you to walk around the city seven times and then stop, have the priests blow the trumpets, have all the people shout, and Jericho will fall down. Does that make sense physically? Does that make sense according to the... You wouldn't have to call General Schwarzkopf to know that's not a good strategy. But you see, this is a weapon that is mighty before God. It is a spiritual weapon, divinely powerful to destroy a fortress. Now, what are spiritual fortresses today? What, what, what spiritual fortresses do you have in your life? What is the Jericho that you are facing? Well, Paul helps us with that in verse 5, where he says, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. These fortresses in our lives are things that are raised up against the knowledge of God. What are they? He says they are speculations. The Greek word is logismos, from which we get our word logic. One of the fortresses in your life is human logic. Man's reasoning, man's opinion. And the other is every lofty thing, which is literally height or high place, which when you read the Old Testament, you find that always idolatry took place in the high places around Israel. And so these fortresses are a false way of thinking and a false way of worshiping. What I think that is opposed to God and what I value that is opposed to God. And I would say that that represents about 95% of the thoughts that we entertain every day. Those thoughts that are rising up and trying to bring down the truth about God. 
And if we don't hear them from outside in the form of evolution, humanism, pantheism, we hear them inside from our flesh. We hear that little voice that says, go ahead and sin. There's no God. There's no consequence. You see, it all has to do with thoughts. That's why when, when John described the world in, in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16, he said, all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Everything in the world, they're really just, it's just this mass of ideas that is opposed to God. And all of those thoughts are fortresses in our lives that rise up against the knowledge of God. Now, what's our strategy? What's the key to victory? The end of verse 5 describes it. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. I said it last time. I'll say it again. If you don't get this, you're going to lose in the battle. The battle is won or lost in your mind. The battle is won by capturing those thoughts and taking them into obedience to Christ. Many Christians live defeated lives because they don't capture thoughts. Thoughts come into their mind, they just let them stay there, and eventually they bear fruit, and that fruit is destructive in their lives. People brag today about saying, you know, I'm open-minded. Well, I would say that's the last place you need to open up, is your mind. Because if you're open-minded, that means everything that comes in just takes over. And if you as a Christian are open-minded, then you are losing in the battle. Every sin begins in the mind. The last time you committed a sin, it didn't happen the moment you committed that sin. It happened when you first thought about committing that sin. And when you first think about committing the sin, if you will capture that thought and take it into obedience to Christ, you'll have victory in that area. See, what you think ultimately dictates what you do. When somebody gets caught in a sin, they oftentimes say, I don't know what I was thinking. I do. You were thinking about what you did. You let the thought come into your mind. You enjoyed the thought. You dwelled on the thought. You let it develop in your mind, and pretty soon you were doing what you were thinking about. When someone comes to me and says, I'm struggling with a temptation or I'm struggling with a sin in my life, my first question is always, what are you watching on TV? What are you listening to? What are you thinking? What are you letting your mind dwell on? Are you capturing thoughts? You see, your mind is the front lines of the battlefield. And if you don't stop the enemy there, he will march right through your life. The battle is won or lost in the mind. Romans 12, 2 says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. And what is it that renews your mind? 
Well, it's the very thing that these fortresses are rising up against. It's the knowledge of God. And where do you get the knowledge of God? Well, go back in 2 Corinthians to chapter 4. I want to show you this. Chapter 4 and verse 6. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where is it? In the face of Christ. Where do you get to know the knowledge of God? You get to know the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ. All you have to do is look at Jesus because he is God in flesh and you will have the knowledge of God. Where do you see Jesus? Look at chapter 3 and verse 18. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. We look at the Lord Jesus and we are changed to be like him. And where do we see the Lord Jesus? We see him in the mirror. And what is the mirror? It's the Word of God. We find the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus, and we find the face of Jesus in the Word of God. This is the Word of God. He is the Word. And in the spiritual battle, the Word is God's primary weapon. You say, you mean this is a weapon? Yeah. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 17, it says it's the sword of the Spirit. So let me ask you a personal question. How often do you read it? How much time do you spend filling your mind with the knowledge of God, which is the sword of the Spirit against those fortresses that rise up against the knowledge of God? You see, if you will spend time reading the Word, you will be able to destroy fortresses. If you will spend time each day reading God's Word, then you will be able to take those thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. Now, that doesn't make any sense according to the flesh, but that is the activity of the effective soldier of God. In fact, I will guarantee you that your flesh will fight and kick and complain every time you open the Bible. Am I right? You open it up and you're by yourself and you're going to read and you, and you, you suddenly remember a laundry list of things you could be doing. Why? That's the battle. The battle is for your mind. And the enemy knows if you get in the Word, you're going to be built up and you're going to have weapons to be able to be victorious in the battle. You show me a guy who is in the Word, and I will show you a guy who will do well in the battle. I don't care how tall you are. I don't care how macho you are. I don't care how devoted you are. I don't care how impressive you are. I don't care how articulate you are. doesn't matter. You've got to be in the Word of God. This is God's weapon that is divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. 
And then Paul adds this in verse 6, and we'll close with this. He says, and we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. Now, that's kind of a tough verse to understand, but I think what Paul is saying is this. In writing 1 Corinthians to you, we were using our spiritual weapons. We were coming up against the speculations and the idolatry of the enemy. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, we attack divisions, the world's wisdom, immorality, lawsuits, idolatry, selfishness, false teaching on the resurrection. Those were all fortresses. Those were all speculations raised up against the knowledge of God. And Paul says, we wrote 1 Corinthians, which is the word of God, to point them out so that you could take them captive to the obedience of Christ. And here in verse 6, he says, when your obedience is complete, then those who are determined to stand in disobedience will be clearly defined, i.e., the false teachers, and then we'll be ready to stand up to them and punish their disobedience. So Paul says, Let's look at my activity from the inside out. Unlike the false teachers whose activity is according to the flesh, I'm walking in the Spirit, I'm doing battle in the Spirit, I'm using spiritual weapons, the primary one of which is the Word of God. Now let me close today by asking you two questions. Number one, Are you planning to have roasted preacher for lunch? Or roasted elder or roasted deacon? If you're going to have that kind of diet, be sure you cook him with the right criteria. Not fleshly and outward measurables, but spiritual and inward qualities. Is his attitude the inner quality of Jesus? Meekness. And is his activity engaging in spiritual warfare with spiritual weapons, i.e., the Word of God and prayer, which are the only weapons that are going to be powerfully designed to bring down fortresses? And the second question. If we viewed you from the inside out, how would you look? Would people describe your attitude as meek and gentle? There's something about that guy that reminds me of Jesus. He's so selfless. He's so gentle. When it comes to your activity, are you taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ? And as you consider those two questions, I'm going to have the praise team come back. And we're going to sing together as we reflect on how God might be speaking to each of us today.